open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I'd encourage you also to um, put a paper or something in Luke chapter 18, because we will go there uh, a little bit later. Matthew chapter 5, continuing where we left off last week, introducing the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus climbed the hill. His disciples and the crowd follow him. He takes a seat, and they then are seated at his feet. This vast crowd spread around the hill. Um, off in the distance, someone sneezes. There's a, a cough over here. Um, a mom reaches down to receive a, a dandelion from her child who proudly gave it to her and with a distracted smile manages to look at him and pat his hand, but her eyes are laser fixed on the speaker. There's a daddy and his boys are playing with imaginary Roman chariots in the dust, and he doesn't know a thing about what they're doing. He's focused on the speaker. Here, there, somewhere in the crowd, there's a kind of a nervous clearing of the throat. Someone wipes their hair out of their eyes so they can see more clearly. And Jesus opens his mouth to speak. This man who has been declaring that people should repent because the kingdom of heaven is right here. By extension, he's been saying, I represent that kingdom. I am the king of heaven. What will be his manifesto? This is his first recorded sermon given for the people, one of five major sermons recorded in the book of Matthew. What will he say? He starts with these words, the king of heaven speaking to peasants on earth, people like us. And this is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. I just want to make some initial observations about these beatitudes, as they are called, these sayings of blessing. First of all, did you notice that Jesus begins his first message describing the kingdom of heaven simply with a description? He doesn't say, look, I'm the kingdom, I'm the king of heaven, and I'm here to straighten y'all out. Now, here's my list of imperatives. He doesn't say, I've got a mandate from on high, and this is what I want y'all to do. He just describes people. This is the, the profile of the proper citizen of his kingdom. These are what true followers of Jesus ought to look like. It's a description, not commands. He's climbed up a mountain. Yes, Moses went up on a mountain, but Moses received this 
startlingly uh, fear-inspiring, awe-inspiring display of glory and thunder and fire and all of that and a loud voice that the people said, don't even, don't let him talk to us. Moses, you go out and talk to him and you tell us what he says. So fear, so fearful and terrifying. And then Jesus climbs a mountain and he just gives a description. It's interesting, he describes the people who live under his reign here and now and on into the future. It's a little bit like a travel brochure. You get those every now and then in the mail, don't you? Whether it's a cruise to go through Europe or someplace in Mexico or whatever. And the brochure is full of happy, smiling people, most of them rather good looking. Uh, and it shows you a few glimpses of where they are and the things they're enjoying. And you get the impression of how they're feeling. And it's like, man, how can I live another year without signing up for that tour? This is a description of people who get the good stuff. Do you notice the last part of each one is they get this, they get this, they get this, they get this. It's like, I want to go there. It's a description. No command, but there's an implied invitation. Y'all, if you want the good stuff, <laughs> listen to me and be like this. Next, uh, he seems to be stressing, this is what I want you to be. He's addressing inner character, matters of the heart and soul. He's not saying, now, y'all need to do this, not what they do. In fact, he's underlining, there will be plenty, yes, in the Sermon on the Mount that describes how, what we ought to act, our behavior, what we ought to do. But he's underlining here that character precedes con conduct. Furthermore, he's describing the fully richly blessed person, actually persons, that they're all in the plural, you probably noticed. Um, it's for your ultimate good. He's not saying these are the things that um, I want y'all to go out and do. This, this is how you can receive full blessing. These people, the people he's describing, get the best that there is. Furthermore, it's blessing in community. Blessed are those, it's plural, not you get this and you get this. It's, it's a plural thing. It, it, it's blessing in community, not isolated achievers, spiritual achievers, standing at the top, having arrived at God's pinnacle of, of good behavior. And furthermore, he's describing in that community what all Christians are to be like. He's not saying, you know, there's some Christians that are this way. And he's saying, no, those who follow me, these are the things that ought to describe them. And it kind of related to that, he's saying all followers of Jesus ought to manifest all of these qualities. Yes, in different proportion and in ever-growing state of maturity. But this is what ought to characterize all of you. Yes, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Very similar list here. But we grow ever deeply in those as, as he uh, describes the character of a follower of Jesus. We all notice here that Jesus is describing things that those who have not yet committed to follow Jesus can never, ever pull off. The natural man, the man, the person without Christ can't be this way. Before you 
put two feet down on that, then let's put another foot on the other thing, and that is those who've committed to follow Jesus. By your presence here, I think that means many, most of you, those who've committed to follow Jesus can't crank it out either. <laughs> we can't do this on our own. Jesus is intentionally putting the bar very high and letting us know we come to it very low <laughs> and unable. We can't generate these qualities even once we've trusted in Christ on our own and in our own, as we call it, uh, the flesh. These are the beatitudes or the blessings of living under Christ's reign, what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Just to notice that in the text, the very first saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Some of you may have a translation, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first one. The final one, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. He's put the blessing of the kingdom of heaven at the beginning and at the end. That's an artistic way of saying what I'm talking about is getting the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between describes those who enter the kingdom of heaven and who live in it, who enjoy its blessings, who grow in greater depth within the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're one of those people out in the crowd listening to this and you're thinking, this is what the kingdom of, the king of heaven wants to announce for all of us to be? He wants us meek? We live among the Romans. They're pushing us around. How are we going to get rid of their, the shackles of their, their authority and uh, our slave and enslavement to them if, we don't, if we're going to be meek? How are we going to inherit the earth? We can't even own our own country of Palestine. The poor? The mourners are happy? Come on. What Jesus has presented for us turns everything in our human value system upside down. And yet, he says, those receive the greatest blessing. Just want to comment about a few of the words and then... I, okay, how do I say this? To be in ministry is to always disappoint people. <laughs> so I'm going to disappoint myself and y'all today because there are books written on these sayings, these beatitudes, and I'm not going to cover all of them. In fact, we're going to go from here to a story because I think a story is going to make the point maybe better than trying to explain all of these qualities, particularly the ones at the, the forefront of it. But the word, just a simple word, blessing, uh, it means fortunate, happy, usually in the sense of someone who is a privileged recipient of marvelous grace. Some other, other uh, definitions are to be fundamentally approved, to find final approval before God. Another, blissful, John MacArthur says, an inward contentedness unaffected by circumstances based on the fact that one's life is right with God. Another, superlatively blessed. Heaven's favor rests on this person. Jesus is saying, heaven's favor rests on those who are poor in spirit. Those who grieve 
their unworthiness. Those who hunger and crave after righteousness because there's not a speck of it inside them. Those people get God's favor when they feel like they are the least favorite in all the world. I'm going to leave an explanation of the kingdom of God and these Beatitudes to go to a story, because I think the story that Jesus told best illustrates it. Could you turn in your Bibles then over to Luke chapter 18? Because we want to we envision, well, who is, what is the kind of person who is poor in spirit? What is the kind of person who mourns his or her unworthiness? Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be in verses 9 and following. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So this describes the precise people Jesus wants to speak to, and he gives, it gives us a, a clue as to what is the meaning of the story that is to come. Um, if you're like me, and I hope most of you aren't, but if you're like me, you kind of instinctively knee-jerk say, well, that ain't me. I don't look on other people with contempt. I, I don't think of myself as, as uh, righteous and having measured up. I don't look down on others. I want to invite you. Could you keep at least one of your ears open and let Jesus speak to us through this story? Perhaps, perhaps there's something in it for each one of us. I know there is for me. Illustration from about 45, 50 minutes ago. I'm driving down Cypress Rose Hill Road, departing my subdivision to come uh, to Cinco Ranch Boulevard. And I am at a stoplight. I'm kind of pulling up to the stoplight. It's bright red. It has been for several seconds. And I'm stopped there. And a big truck with semi-loud music, not too bad, but right next to me just keeps on plowing right through the red light. See, he could see what I could see, and that is we're at a, just an intersection where there's only one street coming in from the left, and there's not a car over there. And so he, in his unrighteousness, just drove right through the red light. And do you know what I did? I laid on the horn at him because I'm righteous. I can look down on him and his uh, poor driving, at least, and his bad behavior, and his being illegal. It, it doesn't matter that I routinely exceed the speed limit. In that moment, I'm righteous, and he's unrighteous, and I have the right to speak for God with my car horn. So, okay, you're laughing at me. Hmm. Say no more. We all look down on others and think of ourselves. We're just kind of stacking up and see where we where do we fit so jesus tells a parable for people like that and he starts out two men went up to the temple to pray as, as we're going to see later this is a really beautiful story because they're going to go back home too it's it's an inclusio like we just talked about heaven and heaven this is they went up they went home um, and so everything in it in between has just a, a very sense of completeness about it but what a huge difference they're going to be 
there's going to be between them when they go home. Now, it's interesting. Jesus deliberately places this story not in a field with sowers and seed, uh, not in a home of someone looking for something lost, not with a sheep and his, or a shepherd and his sheep. He places this story uniquely of all of his stories inside the temple. Two men went up to pray. Now, who are they? On the one hand, there's the Pharisee. Let's just describe him. He's the religious man whose group was defined by separation from others. That's partly what the word means. He's expected to be found in the temple. And he's routinely in prayer, often out in public where people will notice. And he's uh, very much praised by the people. That's the Pharisee. He's standing over here. On the other hand, there's the tax collector over here. He's a very unlikely candidate for religious services. He's unclean due to his constant contact with the Gentile Roman overlords who were, who were their patrons. He's, uh, people are shocked to find him in the temple. He's likely very unaccustomed to the rituals and prayers. He's a newcomer to church. <laughs> he doesn't know when to stand up and sit down. He doesn't know the words to sing or the tune to go with them. He's really unaccustomed to these confines. But there he is. He is despised and hated by the common people. He's considered corrupt, dishonest. They're dishonest cheats who, and betrayers. They are traitors who rake in money from their own people to give to the Romans and take their own cut to make themselves wealthy. They are described throughout the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, I mean, lumped in with the sinners. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, it's like the prostitutes and the pimps and the pushers and the worst, the worst of society. These are the people that are lumped in with them. Tax collectors and sinners notoriously go together. The Pharisee is a rule-compliant lawkeeper, and the tax collectors are notorious lawbreakers. So despite all these vast differences, there are some things that bring them together. Both come to the temple in great need of meeting with God personally. <laughs> Both come as sinners, whether they acknowledge it or not. Both come to the same place at the same time to do the same thing. Both look at themselves before they speak, supposedly, to God. <laughs> And both base their prayers on what they see inside. So what do they do? Let's look at the Pharisee first. <laughs> it says, the Pharisee stood. <laughs> That's the first thing we notice about him. The Pharisee stood. He took his place as if to kind of make a, a speech. Uh, there's a sense of kind of a showy, self-conscious, uh, self-importance about the way he positions himself over there. He stood, and he says, and he was praying this to himself. Now, it could be interpreted, and he stood by himself. As we look at what the prayer is going to be like, it's pretty much that he was praying to himself. I'm not sure it ever reached up there. <laughs> praying to himself, uh, which would be, it would be fitting if he was standing apart by himself because he didn't want to be messing with all these people, the common folks. But more likely it goes with a verb for praying. Praying to or even about himself. 
And as we read, the content about himself makes sense. And then he first, his first sentence, God, I thank you. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? He's addressing the right person, and he's expressing what appears to be gratitude. So far, so good. <laughs> he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> he looks around and says, mm -mm, I ain't like them. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. He haughtily severs himself from the rest of humanity almost, places himself in a completely separate category uh, from the typical unwashed crowd. Then he goes on to list some of the common suspects. Uh, the first are all very generic. They're just people that we should all look down upon, he thinks. The swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers. These are generic descriptions. Then he gets very specific. I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Or even like this tax collector. He separates himself from everyone. Oh, I just happened to know that. Notice that no good cheat is here today. What's he doing in here anyway? He sets forth his imagined moral purity by way of negative comparison. I'm not like everybody else, and I'm certainly not like him. Then he's going to set forth his positive qualities, his religious achievements, his merit badges. I fast twice a week, he says. That far exceeds the one time of fasting that's commanded in the Old Testament. Perhaps it was every second and fifth day of the week, which was the custom among those who were considered more uh, righteous in Judaic society. And he says, beyond that, I also paid tithes of all I get. He goes beyond the law's requirement uh, to give a tenth, and he gives a tenth of everything. So his observances of fasting, his observances of giving, look at me, God. <laughs> there it is. Do you notice that? Five times in his prayer. Five times. I, 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 I. First person singular pronoun for you English freaks. It really does seem fair <laughs> and accurate to interpret it. He prayed about himself. <laughs> He's talking to God. This is all I've done. Look at me. The Pharisee, the Pharisee seems to imagine that God up in heaven is looking on and saying, Whoa, this is impressive. Where did you guys find him? I'm glad he's on our team. He seems to feel like he's impressing God, and he hopes that there are some people around who are listening to his prayer and saying, Whoa, Baba, is he ever good? He parades his bio. <laughs> He lays out his religious resume and his self-congratulations. He finishes his prayer, which amounts to, God, I thank you that I'm pretty cool and I'm pretty good. Um, and he nailed it once again. Another superb performance in the big house. And God surely must be impressed. And he's kind of hoping he might get a standing O from the people gathered around listening to this righteous man and his wonderful prayer. But notice this, there's no expression of lack. There's no prayer request. He has no need of God. He's not asking him for anything. He just finishes his re resume and he's done. 
what the Pharisee said about himself was true. That's one of the shocking things. His trouble was, this is from Leon Morris, his trouble was not that he was not far enough down the road, but that he was on the completely wrong road. So that's his prayer. At the end of it all, he might have actually expected that people would applaud, and he has to admit that he's rather delighted himself uh, at his prayer. Uh, certainly, he's quite satisfied. It's another good performance. He smiles smugly to himself and walks sterile and stiff, head held high out of the temple grounds, squeaky clean, straight as an arrow, and tragically, all alone. Perhaps Jesus' listeners were left hanging as he ends the portion talking about the, the Pharisee's prayer. But there, there's still that other guy, remember? Which way am I pointing? I think he's over here, yes. Um, there's that other guy, we need to hear his prayer. Um, Jesus surprises at first by simply saying there's a tax collector in the temple. But it's gonna be even more shocking than that. He also came to pray. Let's listen into his prayer. But, the next verse, but the tax collector. That first word's important. A huge contrast is coming our way, but the tax collector. Standing some, no, let's note how he positions himself. Standing some distance away. It's almost as if he knows, I don't even deserve to be among those people. And I surely don't have any rights to be in front of a holy God. And so he keeps himself like maybe a visitor who might come to one of our churches and think, you know, I don't know the words. I'm not used to being here. I don't even have a Bible like they're all carrying. And I'm just going to sit in the back row and I'll sneak out before it's all over. And maybe nobody will notice I'm even here. He feels unworthy and keeps himself separate. Perhaps he stood off because he secretly hoped to go unnoticed. Maybe notice what nobody would say. Oh, man, there's a tax collector. What's he doing in here? Just wants to like, he knows he's persona non grata among these people. Um, perhaps he also stood off because if he heard him, he was hoping that that Pharisee, when the Pharisee pointed him out, that nobody else heard. And he probably cringed when he said, when the Pharisee said, I'm not even like the tax collector. Notice his posture. He was unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven. In recent, I'd say maybe decades, I have kind of taken to my posture in prayers. I do this when I pray. I like lights to hit my face and imagining the light of God. I, I don't frequently, I mean, yes, before a meal maybe I bow, but I, I've taken to lifting my eyes up. I like that. I, I want to feel connection to God. This man, knowing his record before God, cannot even lift his face up. Um, in John 14, 41, Jesus lifted his face to pray. Uh, in John 17, 1, in his intimate prayer for all of the disciples, he lifts his face to pray. People properly connected to God looked up in prayer like that. Not this man. He will not do so. Focus in. Take your cameras and zoom in on that face. 
He appears to be blushing, ashamed, embarrassed, maybe even, even distressed, deeply, painfully conscious of a holy God's eye that's probing him from on high. And he cannot bring himself to look up at that probing face. His thoughts are somewhat like the spiritual leader, Ezra, who is with the gathered people of God who have come back out of captivity and are found in sin again, the same sin that caused them to be banished from the land. And here Ezra says, look, here we are doing the same stuff again. How can we be like this? Let me read Ezra's prayer from Ezra 9, verse 6. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Tax collector prays a lot like Ezra. So we've seen where he's standing, and we've noticed his posture. Now look at his very actions. The verse goes on to say, he was beating his breast. It's obviously a sign of great repentance and awareness of guilt. He's beating on his rib cage, which protects his heart because he knows the heart is the problem with who he is. This, these words, beating their breasts, used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Luke 23, verse 48. When the people have seen Jesus being brutally murdered on a cross, they walk away from that ugly, terrifying scene. They walk away back to their homes, beating their breasts. Here, this man who cannot look up at God is beating his breast. And it's in the, in the, uh, the verb is in the Im imperfect, which he was continually doing so. If you and I were at the temple that day, we watched over at him, we'd think, man, there's something wrong. <laughs> and he would say, absolutely, I agree. There's something wrong. There stands a, a broken man, burdened by the weight of sin that is too heavy for him to bear. He's at the end of himself. He yearns for connection with God, and he has only one hope. Completely unlike the Pharisee, he knows that hope is not within himself. Just like we, who we, when we are thinking correctly, know the very same way. Let's listen to his prayer. We've noted where he's standing. We've noted his posture downward. We've noticed his actions beating. Now let's listen to his words. God, be merciful. God be merciful. He uses a word that's an unusual one in the New Testament. It has the idea of making reconciliation by sacrifice. He is aware of his guilty condition in front of God. And the only thing he can see is if I'm to be right with you, if my soul is ever to be cleansed, it's going to be because you took mercy. It's got to come from you. It can't come from me. But notice the rest of the prayer. It's not just God be merciful. God, be merciful to me, not a sinner, but in the language of his day. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Pharisee had separated himself from everyone else. I'm not like all other people. And 
the tax collector separates himself from all. I'm not like all those other people. I'm worse. I'm the worst. I'm the sinner. I'm the, if you want to describe a sinner, look me up in the dictionary. That's who I am. And he's unlike all the other people who seem to be so much better. He is a broken man. God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. That's his prayer. God, show mercy to me, the sinner. And Jesus' story, as far as the story itself goes, is complete. Our camera and the crowd's imagination hones in on this downcast man begging God for help. Now, if Jesus had paused too long right there, I'm sure there would be some crap box in the crowd who would say, you betcha you're a sinner. Get out of here. You don't even belong in this place. Amen. You're right about yourself. Get out. But Jesus will not allow that to happen. Notice Jesus says to them, I tell you, <laughs> he's finished with his story, and now he's looking at the people, and he lasers in on all of them. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. <laughs> Jesus uses the demonstrative pronoun just like the Pharisees did. I'm not like other people, not like this tax collector. Jesus, on the other hand, says, this man, rather than that one, went down to his house justified. It is a stunning role reversal. Everyone would expect, oh, this one is tight with God. This one, uh-uh. And the crowd is just shocked. The character perceived by the masses as religiously upright, the one who applauded him uh, by his peers as righteous, this one confidently sets himself, uh, pats himself on the back for his godly achievements. achievements. The other one is outright rejected by God. But the one everybody regarded as wicked scum has his prayer welcomed by God. More than that, he is declared to be in good standing with God. I wonder if you can just picture this. <laughs> in my imagination, that self-assured Pharisee wraps his robe about himself. He winds his way through the unclean crowd, careful not to let anybody touch him. He smiles to himself that all is well. He's more than good enough for God's approval. He's in and so, so, so many others are out. He makes his way downhill from the temple grounds and heads home all by himself, tragically by himself, stiff, straight, Squeaky clean, but isolated, love-starved, and bereft, utterly alone. That tax collector, I wrote it this way, guilty as sin, and he knows it. Dirty to the core, and he confessed it. Condemned, and he deserved it. A stash of formerly hidden sins, and he owned up to it. He stared at the floor and made his unartful, broken-hearted, humble appeal for mercy. And he got it. Somehow, someway, he knew it. God had heard, astoundingly, 
a holy, all-righteous God had forgiven him. He felt it. He was sure of it. His spirit sensed it. Yet with his eyes downward, still suffering the glare of the crowd's disgust, he quietly strides out the temple, down the hill, through those familiar stone streets in Jerusalem, toward his home. Now I'm asking you, zoom your camera in on him. Watch really closely. Look at that face. Catch that joyful gleam in his eye. His countenance grows increasingly creased with a broad, assured, liberated smile. Yes, watch this. He pumps a fist and he skips. Yes, a tax collector skips. A pardon publican jumps for joy. There's something else. It's not actually visual, visible, but if you really pay attention with spiritual eyes, you see it. He's not alone. There's somebody with him, someone with him who will stay with him for the rest of his life, and he will never, ever, ever be alone. I tell you, this man, went home right with God. <laughs> I like those last two words, with God. Jesus has given teachings on the hill that we've read through. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they get the kingdom of heaven. In another passage, he's told us a story that said, don't be in so many words, don't be like this man and imagine you're right with God. Be like this one who knows and craves and hungers after righteousness so that he could be filled. As we close, I'd like you to think about yourself, for us to think about ourselves. What can we do this week? What positive action can we take to be less like this one and more like that one? Here's a simple suggestion. I hope you, the Spirit will guide you to better ones. But one is to just take that song, that hymn, Amazing Grace. How crazy sweet the sound that saved a, a dirty, rotten wretch like me. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. Take that word amazing and just switch it to something else. And every day this week, just say it to yourself. I don't deserve to be here. I don't fit in. I didn't, I didn't merit this. I'm poor in spirit. There's nothing in me. I hunger after righteousness because I don't have it. I mourn my sinfulness because it's so characteristic of me. Oh, I yearn to be right with God. What if you change the word to uh, astounding? I, I wrote some other words down. I even thought of one this morning, and I'm not quite sure exactly what it means, so I'm, uh, I'm going to suggest it, and you can look it up. Gobsmacked. <laughs> I think it's probably an old English word. It means like, like totally dumbfounded. Astounding grace, how sweet the sound 
Stunning grace, how sweet the sound. Dumbfounding mercy, how beautiful the sound. To someone undeserving like me. <laughs> Jesus. looks over the crowd that day on the hill and he says, you are supremely blessed if you're poor in spirit. God wants to give you the kingdom. Welcome in. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus for your teaching and your stories that convict our heart that we indeed deserve nothing from you. But if we'll just come, if we'll come and place our faith in what you did for us, we sang some beautiful songs this morning about the cross and what you accomplished there for us. If we'll just come and place our faith in Christ, humble in spirit, broken over our sins, you grant us yourself. You grant us entrance into heaven. You accompany us, accompany us as we walk in the kingdom of heaven, as we walk under your lordship. And every day we can deepen that sense of spiritual impoverishment and joy over spiritual enrichment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the beautiful, good name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.